with that, I'd like to welcome you all to the Department of Defense Bloggers Roundtable for Friday, June 7, 2013. My name is William Selby with the Office of the Secretary of Defense Public Affairs, and I'll be moderating the call. Today, we are honored to have as our guests Captain Sean Lowbury and Colonel Scott Campbell, Commanding Officers of the Peleliu Amphibious Ready Group and the 15th MU, who will discuss the mission and capabilities of the Crisis Response Marine Air Ground Task Force, Pacific Presence, promoting theater security and fostering partnerships in the Western Pacific and Middle East. A note to the bloggers on the line, I know you all know the uh, rules of engagement, but please remember to clearly state your name and blog or organization in advance of your question. Respect our guest's time, and if you are not asking a question, we ask that you please place your phone on mute. Uh, with that, ma'am, um, if either Captain Lobry or Colonel Campbell have qu uh, opening statements, they can go ahead with those now. Okay. Uh, Colonel Campbell here. Uh, what I'd like to do is just reinforce the utility of our uh, amphibious forces. Uh, General Tryon, uh, one of the three-star generals in the Marine Corps that runs uh, plans, policies, and operations, refers to the MU as the Swiss Army knife of the fleet. And by that, he's referring to the fact that uh, the, the MU can respond to a variety, uh, the ARG-MU team can respond to a variety of uh, problems across the spectrum of conflict. Uh, at the low end or the phase zero end, we talk about doing theater security cooperation, building partner capacity, it's almost like a diplomatic line of operation, if you will, as we reinforce our allies through our presence and we uh, work with them to develop their capabilities. And it also allows us to stay sharp while deployed by, so we can train. And we also can go up to the high end operations to support contingency operations in support of war plan. And pretty much everything in between, uh, uh, humanitarian assistance, disaster relief, and, and the way I like to describe it, it's like a, a pro sports team. And we play 12 different sports, if you will. And what's unique about it is we're always going to play an away game. We don't know the venue or the stadium, in this case the country we're going to play in. We don't know, necessarily know the rules we're going to play, but we know we have to win and we have to be ready to play every day. And uh, making sure the ARGMU team is uh, ready for that takes a lot of training and effort. And uh, I think it's a cornerstone to what, the way our nation is going to be postured as we go forward in a more resource-constrained environment. It does so many things that it's going to be, I think it's becoming more important to our national defense, not less so, as we look at drawing down forces and resetting our military in a more resource-constrained environment. Cam Lober. Uh, good afternoon, Cam Lober here. I'd just like to uh, add that uh, uh, on our uh, deployment, we enjoyed uh, really strong teamwork, strong relations between the Navy and Marine Corps, as we always have. And our, uh, our amphibious ships are, uh, uh, continue to uh, answer uh, the call for, uh, for service and, and tasking. We met all our commitments. Our ships are uh, larger and faster and much more uh, technologically advanced uh, now than, than ever before. And uh, we continue to remain a, a very important tool, uh, a, a national strategic asset for our uh, for a country to uh, crawl on, uh, call upon for uh, crisis response or uh, any of the range of those 12 uh, missions that Colonel Campbell mentioned. Thank you very much, sir. And first on the line, we had Chuck Simmons. Go ahead with your questions, Chuck. Uh, good afternoon, gentlemen. Uh, Chuck Simmons with America's North Shore Journal. Uh, 
how do you prepare Marines for humanitarian missions? Um, you know, uh, especially with the variety of cultures and countries and ethnic groups that that you have in the Pacific. Uh, how do you how do you prepare them to uh, be training uh, police one day to be working uh, in a medical center another day and, and uh, how does that how does that work out and how how country specific do you get? Well, to, uh, I'll answer the second part of your question first with regard to the preparation culturally. Uh, before we go to a country, whether it's for a TSC event, uh, a training event, or a uh, potentially humanitarian assistance or disaster relief operation, uh, our intelligence section will uh, brief the Marines. Actually, we'll make videos and show them on the ships that will cover all aspects of the country that we're going to, their demographics with regard to religion, you know, Muslim, Christian, et cetera. Uh, we'll talk about the, uh, the environment they're going to operate in with regard to the heat, uh, humidity, jungle, uh, what uh, organic uh, animals or wildlife that's dangerous uh, with regard to snakes and spiders and things like that. Uh, we'll, we'll give them a history lesson about the country. We generally print off cards. We'll, we'll make cards with the uh, language that we, uh, we're going to encounter with uh, proper greetings and uh, questions that will help us, allow us to communicate at a rudimentary level, at least with the host nation. Uh, as far as the training goes, we rely on certain core competencies to get us through uh, a humanitarian operation. Our dental personnel do dental things. Our medical people do medical things. We can make water and provide engineering support. There's, there's a wide variety of just basic tasks that the Marines are able to do uh, based on their MOS and their skill set. And then what we'll try to do is, based on the nature of the problem, uh, bring these different capabilities together to, uh, to provide the relief, uh, the, the best relief and support we can to that nation. It's a real hard thing to train to because each situation is different, but the core skills of uh, purifying water or providing medical and dental support and engineering support are things the Marines do every day. So uh, I would tell you we train in our, our core competencies, and then we put those together when we arrive at a given uh, site. Does that answer your question, sir? Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. And next is Andrew. Yeah. Gentlemen, good afternoon. Andrew Lubin from Lesnack Magazine. Good to be able to talk with you both. Part of the uh, strength of the MU is the uh, blue-green team. When you're out there doing a TSC, are you doing a Cobra Gold where it's Marines on the ground? Are you doing a exercise that's more Marine Navy, uh, for example, similar to Dawn Blitz uh, coming up in the next two weeks? Campbell over here, we really uh, do a, a combination of both. It, it depends on uh, the nature of the uh, cooperation event that's been planned. Uh, for example, we had a, uh, an event uh, ashore in uh, Timor-Leste uh, in uh, October of last year, exercise Crocodilo, and uh, it was primarily a uh, MU uh, show with, with uh, Marine forces ashore, both uh, doing uh, humanitarian uh, assistance missions, uh, some mill-to-mill -mill training, but there were also some, uh, some, some naval pieces with some sailors uh, ashore uh, from, from a, a medical and dental capability engagement, 
Uh, we sent our, our, uh, our, our medical and dental uh, experts ashore. Uh, we also had some Navy Seabees uh, engage and participate in, in the uh, event. So it, you, you really see uh, both, and, and uh, it depends on how, how that uh, engagement is, is planned and, and executed. But uh, the Navy loves to go ashore. We rarely get the opportunity to do it. Our job is to run the ships and to support the Marines, but uh, we're, we're happy to, to go ashore whenever uh, our services are, are, are needed. The only thing I'd add to that would be that uh, when we were in the Gulf, uh, certain navies like the Emirati Navy, the uh, Saudi Arabia, Arabian Navy, uh, it wasn't unusual to see their ships come out and interact with the, uh, the ARG, uh, you know, the ships that we had in the Gulf, practicing various things from escorting ships and different things. So generally speaking, the naval component is, is usually represented. Uh, it, it doesn't get as much attention because most of the time, the, it, the, the press covers what's going on ashore. So uh, it, it happens virtually every time we, we have a TSC. It's just not often as visible uh, due to the nature of the train. Thank you. you all right, and Gail. Oh, gentlemen, thank you for taking the time to do speech with Gail Harris from the Foreign Policy Association. I was wondering about uh, <clears throat> the crisis response. I remember former Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta said that concerning the Benghazi situation, there simply wasn't a, a, the time distance factors and, and so forth precluded the military response. And I understand since that time that Marines have set up a, a group of about 500 Marines to be able to respond in the future. And I guess the question I have for you, just looking at it, it seems how do you – uh, plan on uh, responding to a crisis where you had so, uh, I'm assuming, not that much information about the unfolding situation. Oh, there was violence, there was confusing about the, even where the former ambassador was, uh, was in the hospital or, or so forth. I'm wondering what kind of lessons learned did you take from Benghazi uh, and try to change or modify in terms of being able to respond to a quick unfolding crisis where there's not really a lot of information available on what's going on? Well, I think the, the way we approach a, a most crisis response, especially with regard to embassy reinforcement or a noncombatant evacuation operation, it, you know, we start at the embassy. Uh, the, most of the uh, embassies around the world have a, a plan that outlines where their various facilities are that either house American citizens or their workspaces, and it, what we found is it's accurate. By and large, it's very accurate. Uh, we'll download the imagery the, at the first indication we have a problem. We'll pull that plan. When we go into different areas of the world, we pull the uh, plans for the countries that we know have unrest in them. So it, we're not starting, usually, I say, we won't be starting at a, uh, at a like a, a zero uh, right. with regard to planning. Uh, so once we, we pull the imagery, we will develop a baseline plan to get into the embassy or consulate or various facilities that we need to, and then we, we just shift from that known point. Uh, part of the, the, I guess, the beauty of the ARGNU team is, uh, is, you know, we can play the pickup game if we have to. If we know where we're going, uh, if we know where we have to get to, we'll find a way to get in, even if it's via fast rope, in order to uh, reinforce the place. Uh, the facility, and then we'll work a more detailed plan for the extraction later. So the, the, the ever-changing uh, nature of, uh, 
of a chaotic situation like that really precludes you from coming up with the perfect plan in a limited amount of time. So what we right. try to come up with is a, is a baseline plan that will get the forces in place and then count on the uh, uh, capabilities and uh, resources that we put in there and, and, and largely the uh, young men and women that we put on the ground to make good decisions and, uh, and save the day. Thank you. And on to Raymond. Uh, this is Raymond Pritchett for information dissemination. I want to thank you both for uh, taking our questions today. Um, I was looking over your biographies for both of you, and I found it interesting. You're both uh, masters from Naval War College, and you both came in commissioned from the Naval Reserve Officers Training. And uh, both of you, the last time that you had taken had been to sea was with a MU or an ARG, and it was to the Gulf. And I was going to ask if both of you could walk through that from your experiences the last time that you went on a deployment like this to the experience that you had this time as the commander and kind of share how, how we, the previous experience shaped this experience. Uh, Cam Lover here. Uh, it's an uh, interesting question. Uh, I, I've uh, deployed to the Gulf uh, numerous times, the first time in 1988. And each time I've been there has been a very different uh, mission. The first deployment, I was uh, on a, a combatant, a surface combatant, and our focus was on uh, the tanker war and uh, Operation Earnest Will es escorting uh, reflag Kuwaiti tankers. And uh, subsequent deployments were on amphibious ships, uh, uh, one focused on uh, the Horn of Africa and, and Somalia, the humanitarian crisis there in 93. Uh, the next was uh, the uh, beginning of Operation Enduring Freedom and Operation Iraqi Freedom on uh, first an AOE and then a uh, amphibious assault ship, the uh, the Bataan. Uh, that last deployment for me was in 2003, and uh, we, we we focused on uh, bringing uh, elements of uh, a Marine regiment to uh, uh, land ashore via Kuwait, and uh, that was Task Force Tarawa, and then we reconfigured to. Uh, uh, strike mission as a uh, one of two Harrier carriers, so uh, that was a, a, a that was really our, our focus was the uh, that initial uh, uh, heavy major combat operation uh, phase of Iraqi freedom. Uh, this deployment was uh, very different in that uh, we uh, we knew we had a certain amount of uh, theater security cooperation events planned for us as as our major employment. But we also knew that we would serve uh, both as a theater reserve to the uh, Central Command, Combatant Commander, and also as a uh, crisis response force, which is really uh, the bread and butter uh, uh, employment that we, we train for and, and are prepared to uh, execute uh, on any given day when we're forward deployed. So uh, we did have uh, two of our ships spend most of their time in the Arabian Gulf with theater security cooperation events and, uh, and, and some uh, real-world operations, and then our uh, amphibious assault ship spent most of our time out of the uh, Persian Gulf, uh, postured to both support the Central Command Commander and also AFRICOM and uh, contingency support operations there, such as uh, embassy reinforcement, uh, preparing to uh, evacuate Americans, etc. cetera. Uh, we didn't have to uh, do any of those uh, missions. We just had to plan for them. So uh, I, I hope that uh, answered your question. Uh, 
as to you know the last deployment versus this one. Uh, this Colonel Campbell here. It's interesting. The more things change, the more they remain the same. I guess is how I'd answer that question. I was the BLTXO or BLT26 uh, aboard the USS Wasp LHD1 uh, right after the war started, uh, right after 9/11, uh, when we went to the Persian Gulf or the the Gulf region. And what was interesting then is we were looking at the same general problem sets that we're looking at today, uh, counterterrorism operations in Yemen, Somalia, looking at potential crisis response for embassies in the region. It's interesting that uh, we're dealing with many of the same problems that we were uh, over a decade ago. Uh, for me as a commander, I, I gained a much greater appreciation for what my new commander was doing in those days. Uh, you know, I, I, I spent a lot of time, as did my counterpart, uh, uh, the Commodore, uh, worrying about how we're going to respond to various problem sets uh, as far north as Lebanon and uh, the Syria-Jordan, or Syria, yeah, Syria-Jordan situation, uh, unrest in Cairo, unrest in Khartoum, unrest in Eritrea, Kenyan elections, problems in Uganda, the Central African Republic. I mean, the, the swath of problems we were looking at, and then the other way, we, we, there was unrest in Karachi at one point that we planned against. And uh, it, was a, it was a Herculean task looking at all the different problems, trying to develop baseline plans that we could execute from, and then posturing the MU properly to be positioned, the, the ships and the Marines uh, aboard the USS Pelu to respond to those problems. And, and it extended to our C-130s if they were in the right place to, in order to properly refuel our aircraft in the event we had to go a long-range mission from the ship. So uh, for me, it was a, uh, uh, a major change in scope uh, and uh, trying to think through and anticipate possible problems and how we would solve problems so uh, we would be there when the, when the crisis happened to take care of American interests. Does that answer your question, sir? Yes, sir. I appreciate it for both of you. I notice it's been several years since both of you have taken long deployments. Is it the, the time difference in terms of you know, eight years ago and then 10, or 11 years ago for you, Colonel? Um, you, are they still that, that similar? I mean, those are long, long periods of time between long deployments. Well, as far for me, I've I, I deployed a lot between then. It was just. Uh, uh, to other theaters, you know, to other conflicts like Iraq, uh, Afghanistan, and the like. So, you know, I, the deployments for me have been ongoing. It's just the, the shipboard uh, deployments have changed. I was fortunate to go out with the last deployment of the CH-46 Echo uh, uh, C-Night helicopter, which is what we deployed with uh, the last time. Uh, so it was very similar for me with regard to the equipment. I think had I gone out with Ospreys like uh, everybody else does now, it would, it would have been a, a major change with regard to range and speed, uh, with, with regard to problems you can address. The, the Ospreys an incredible increase in technology and capability for the ARGMU team. So uh, the, the equipment hadn't changed gr uh, that much for us with regard to the major end items. But a lot of the radios and, and uh, more tactical equipment we've been fielding throughout the war uh, was present, so that it, it wasn't that much of a culture shock for me. Sean? I would uh, echo similar sentiments. Uh, major difference in, in, uh, uh, on, the, on the equipment perspective for me is that uh, we have a, a new uh, class of LPD, the San Antonio class, 
that replaced the older uh, Austin class uh, in the amphibious ready group, and the ship was uh, significantly larger and, and more capable uh, th than the previous one. But uh, uh, I, does that uh, answer your uh, your question? Yes, thank you. Thank you, gentlemen. And was there anybody on the line so far that has not had a chance to ask a question? Okay, then we'll move back around to Chuck. Yes. Um, I'm totally civilian, not uh, familiar with a lot of, uh, of uh, military at all. Um, how do the ships that make up an ARG, uh, how do they interact as they did on your last tour? And uh, how, uh, say, in a wartime scenario, what would be different? Um, I, I guess I'm not used to the idea that that uh, ships uh, uh, in a related unit are spread over hundreds, if not thousands, of miles doing different missions. Right. Uh, well, uh, remember the Navy is a global force for good, and uh, we've got uh, a, a range of capability from uh, you know, major combat operations to uh, uh, humanitarian assistance and, and disaster response, and and, uh, and doing a lot of good in the world and saving lives. And we, you know, we train for the whole. Spectrum. Uh, what allows me to command and control ships uh, spread over hundreds or even thousands of miles on, on an average day on our deployment, uh, our three ships were a thousand miles or more apart, uh, is, is the tremendous technology uh, that we have and our tremendous uh, satellite communication capability. So uh, I had the ability to uh, communicate with the ship commanding officers uh, at any moment by uh, picking up a telephone and being able to speak, speak with them. Uh, directly and uh, in, a, in a secure manner. So it's uh, it's that technology that allows me to uh, maintain a, uh, a, a what we call situational awareness, uh, a, a good feel for where the ships are, what they're doing, how far away they are from land, what missions they're carrying out, and also what other ships and airplanes are uh, around them. Does that answer your question, sir? Uh I, I think so. You, the, your last comment about the, the other ships and airplanes around them, uh, basically, you're far more integrated to other military units, other services, than would be, uh, say, a, a landing force from uh, World War II or or even uh, the 1980s. Yes, absolutely. There's there's really no comparison. We've got uh, a, a, a real-time or nearly real-time uh, feel for uh, you know where our ships are, what what they're doing, how they're being employed, you know what their schedule is today, what their focus is, and and also uh, uh, our, our our friends and and uh, coalition partners that are that are nearby. So there's just no no comparison to those uh, previous uh, uh, time frames. Hey, thank you. Thanks very much, Chuck and Andrew. Yes. Gentlemen, I think my question is for you both. In the, in the Pacific, we've got the Chinese now who, who are uh, trying to develop an amphibious capacity. Yesterday, okay, the Russians announced they're going to they're gonna station a uh, permanent uh, maritime force off of Syria. But these countries don't do HADR. They don't do NEO operations. They don't do what, what WR does. Do the countries out there see them as competition to us, or are we still the uh, 
they're still looking for us uh, for assistance in these sort of situations. Well, I, I, I want to make sure I understand the question. Uh, I don't. Uh, are you asking if we think we're in competition with them as amphibious forces? No, you... no. Do, do, the, do the countries when you're when you're doing a port call in Djibouti and in, in, in Karachi, wherever it might be, in in, in Asia or in, in the with the uh, Emiratis, do they see us as do they see these other countries as competition with us? I don't think so. so. Uh, the United States Navy is uh, unique in its ability to project power. No other Navy in the world has the ability of our Navy to project power. You, you combine a ARGMU team. We prefer to sail together and employ together because there's a synergy in the three ships and the combat power that we embark on those three ships. You combine that with a, a carrier strike group, and that's an incredible uh, force projection capability. Uh, it's as much deterrent as it is uh, skill with regard to its ability to actually execute missions. Uh, other navies of the world have, you know, submarines and uh, uh, different platforms. And nobody can integrate it like us. So I don't think the, the rest of the world sees these forces as competition uh, with regard to maritime dominance. I think they would like to, but I don't think we're there yet. I, I think the reality is that uh, we're all in a competition for influence. So uh, Russian ships, Chinese ships, pick your country ships, by being on the seas and going to foreign ports, uh, you're sending a message about your strength as a, uh, as, uh, to influence events throughout the world. So the, the actual ability to influence events may not be as great in one country or another, but the fact that they're out there doing things, when you, when you look at the, uh, off the Gulf of Aden and the counter-piracy operations, You'll see Iranian vessels, Chinese, Russian, British, Australian. I mean, it's truly, although they don't, we don't always get along and, and it's not a coalition per se, everybody's out there doing the same type things, trying to uh, prevent piracy, but they're also sending a message that they have the ability to employ forces and influence events around the world. So I think it's more of a competition of influence than it is a competition of capability. Does that answer your question, sir? Yes, it does. Thank you very much. Thanks. And on to Gail. Yes, gentlemen, my question is for both of you. <clears throat> As a former naval intelligence officer, I got lots of scars. And so I was wondering in terms of a lessons learned after action type report, if you just say a few comments about the caliber of intelligence report you uh, support you received on your deployment in terms of did you get what you needed? in the time you needed it, in the format you needed it, and as uh, what's the buzzword, actionable intelligence. Right. Uh, I really feel we've, we've come a long way <clears throat> in our uh, uh, intelligence support to uh, the Amphibious Ready Group and uh, the technological advances that I mentioned earlier uh, with, with uh, uh, shipboard networks and ability to, uh, to share information, whether it's uh, compartmented or, or uh, uh, more uh, general and open, uh, it just come really a long way. And I think we've uh, uh, done a good job of, of matching uh, the, the intelligence uh, information with the, with the operator, uh, and, and there, there are a lot of reasons for that. But uh, in general, our, our intelligence was, was uh, uh, timely and, and helpful and, and supported the, uh, the operations that we uh, both uh, knew about well in advance uh, whether they were uh, 
exercises, what have you, and the uh, the crisis and contingency events that we had a lot less time to uh, to prepare for. The only thing I would add to that is, you know, there are a variety of uh, ENTS, as you know, different uh, capabilities we bring to the table. Uh, sometimes you're able to get, uh, you know, predator or reaper type support uh, from the uh, remote uh, or from the unmanned uh, aircraft, uh, manned aircraft, satellite imagery. There, there's a host of tools that we're a heck of a lot better at since the war started uh, in terms of uh, bringing together layering uh, to build the picture for the uh, man on the ground, or in this case, the Commodore and I, for making decisions. As you couple that with a superbly trained intelligence uh, apparatus of personnel, uh, combat experience, a lot of them, uh, I, I thought the intelligence support was superb. You're, you're always going to want more information, but that, I think that's what makes the, the Navy Marine team so uh, special, is we're accustomed to operating with imperfect information. And uh, I was uh, pleasantly surprised with the level of detail we were able to achieve when we, uh, when we put all the different intelligence aspects together to build us a picture. So I wasn't the least bit disappointed. And I was uh, pleasantly impressed with our abilities and uh, the skills of the young uh, intelligence operators that were building that picture for us. Thank you. Good to hear. And uh, Raymond, did you have a follow-up? Oh, yeah, I was going to ask both the captain and the colonel, um, what, you know, eight-month deployment, I was wondering if you could tell us, for each of you, what the uh, operational high point, the, the event that took place that, you know, you fist-pumped in the air, uh, and then what the operational low point, that 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 something happened that just it was it was a frustrating moment professionally or, or operationally, um, during this particular deployment, you know, each of you probably seen things from different perspectives, of course, but uh, I'd be interested in hearing about those stories. Well, to begin with, uh, for, for the high point, uh, uh, being able to plan and execute the theater security cooperation events in uh, East Timor, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, uh, and the United Arab Emirates uh, was, was very uh, professionally satisfying. Uh, because we really did a, did a lot of good. Uh, you know, not only did we engage with uh, with partners and uh, conduct mill to mill training and, and uh, you know a range of of uh, uh, valuable engagement, but uh, we also uh, got some benefit for our, our forces and, and able by being able to to do some training ashore, particularly for the for the Marines and uh, and, and, to, and to maintain some some uh, some proficiency and some currency. So that was very satisfying. The, uh, I would tell you that there were two high points for me. Uh, the first was at one point the ships were separated by uh, thousands of miles. We had uh, the LSD up off the coast of Kuwait. We were doing a TSC event in Kuwait. We had to fly a company off the Green Bay, which would, had offloaded some Marines into Djibouti and had moved down to the, uh, off the coast of Somalia for some work. And the uh, Peleliu was up in the Red Sea. We were postured to reinforce the embassy in Khartoum or evacuate it, depending on what, if things went bad. So at a given time, we had three ships separated by thousands of miles, Marines doing TSC training, posturing to support special operations forces, and, uh, and, and the big deck, the Peleliu, postured to uh, execute an embassy reinforcement or a NEO. Uh, that was a high point when you looked at all the training that went into uh, 
set the conditions to be successful to do three disparate things separated by thousands of miles simultaneously. That was one high point. The second high point was when we outshopped, or when we came home and we offloaded, and I took 2,400 Marines and sailors to sea with 31 airplanes, and I returned 2,400 Marines and sailors home to their loved ones and all 31 aircraft. Uh, that's not a given. It's not unusual to lose Marines and sailors, uh, whether it be in training accidents or combat or, uh, or lose aircraft. So uh, that was, uh, in my opinion, the two high points. Uh, and I guess if I, if I had to have a low point, it would be we, we were looking for a bad guy at one point, and we never found him. Uh, he, we thought he was going to be at sea, and we thought we were going to catch this guy, and we, and we never found him. Uh, he just never emerged. So that would be the only low point, and there was nothing we could do about that. So overall, I was thrilled with how the deployment went. Uh, just, just two more comments. Uh, I want to add to Colonel Campbell's first high point about uh, doing three disparate missions with, with the three ships at the same time. Also, uh, we were supporting two geographic combatant commanders at the same time, uh, both Central Command and Africa Command. So that was uh, uh, really uh, an impressive feat. And uh, one other high point on the way home, this was kind of a really a pop-up that we were uh, not necessarily expecting. Uh, we were about 1,000 miles west of Hawaii, and we were contacted by the Coast Guard for a, uh, a search and rescue mission. There was a, uh, a sailing vessel, about a 40-foot sailing vessel that was in distress, and uh, we were able to uh, respond and uh, using uh, both Navy and Marine Corps aircraft, uh, we executed a search and rescue, found the vessel in distress, and, and uh, were able to, to save a life. So, uh, so that felt uh, really good and was definitely you know, one of several high points of, of the deployment. Thank you very much for that, sir. <clears throat> I, uh, we're about, just about out of time now, so I'd like to ask uh, Captain Lobery and Colonel Campbell, do you have any closing comments you'd like to say? I'd just like to close by uh, uh, echoing how important the uh, Amphibious Ready Group and the Marine Expeditionary Unit uh, team and, and uh, uh, capability is to our Navy, to our Marine Corps, and to our nation. Uh, I, I feel uh, uh, clearly this is the nation's premier crisis response force. We're highly trained. We're four deployed. Uh, I'd, I'd like to have uh, quite a few uh, more of these units uh, if we can. Uh, but the reality is uh, uh, we're deploying uh, today about one and a half of these uh, groups uh, anywhere in the world at any given time. And uh, we are the nation's premier crisis response force, and uh, we need to continue to maintain and improve on this capability. The only thing I would add is I think my commandant, General Amos, says it best when he says, you know, the Marines – uh, need to be, and the ARDNU in particular, need to be able to respond to today's crisis with today's force today. And I think that's what the ARDNU is designed to do. If we're not forward deployed and we don't have the right resources forward, then we're not going to be able to respond to problems, uh, whether they're at our embassies or other crisis and humanitarian and disaster relief type operations. Uh, as we, we're going to have to make hard choices as a nation and how we expend our resources on the military. And, uh, you know, I, I, I drank the Kool-Aid. You can say I, I'm a firm believer that the ARDNU is the best bang for the buck due to its ability to respond to the spectrum of uh, conflict and be that crisis response force forward that can deal with so many different problems. 
and uh, you know, optimally, we'd be able to keep two of these, two point two to two and a half of these on the water at a time, to be able to cover the Mediterranean, the Pacific, and the uh, Gulf region simultaneously. Uh, and I think that that's the real message: is you know, how we, how how are we going to posture to respond to problems in the future? And I think the fact that we don't have to ask permission to sail our ships around the world and and posture them to respond makes it the, the ARGNU uniquely suited to be able to uh, respond to our nation's call. Thank you very much, sir. To the bloggers on the line, I'd just like to say, if you have any follow-up questions, please feel free to email me those questions and I'll forward those along. Uh, I want to thank everybody on the line for your questions and comments today and your time. Today's program will be available on DDLive.mil. There will be a print transcript uh, as well as an audio file from this Bloggers Roundtable. Again, I appreciate everybody's time and your questions on this call. Thank you for your participation. This ends today's call.